Welcome to today's episode in Life from the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and really excited for today's guest with Bronwyn Greer from uh, the ATP in the sense of she is a tournament director for one of their 250 level uh, tournaments. And I, as I'm looking at the tournament name, I'm like, man, how do I say that? That's a long name. And so I'm going to kick it to her to introduce herself and, and kind of uh, what she does, and, and then we'll dive into everything tournament director, uh, what what a tournament director is, what they do, um, and the, and we'll run the whole gamut. So Bronwyn, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jake. Jake, I appreciate you guys having me on today. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it. It's always good to connect with with others during what now seems like a time when you could use connection more than anything. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so. Give, it, give us uh, an intro to what you do and, and, and for what. Sure thing. I am the tournament director for the Fias Serafomenko U.S. Men's Clay Court Championships at River Oaks Country Club in Houston, Texas. Um, and I think it goes without saying we have one of the longer names of any event um, that I've ever come across. So it can definitely be a mouthful, but it's something that we are very proud of and that I very much enjoy working on and, and being a part of. So. And if you had to say that 10 times, you might be just done with the episode at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. think. <laughs> How much time do you have on your hands today? <laughs> yeah. So when you, when you say tournament director, right, and, and that can mean a lot of different things in a variety of aspects of our industry. Um, how did you get to be a tournament director and what qualifies one to be one? Oh, man. Um, you know, I think everyone would probably have a different answer as to what qualifies someone to be one. Um, if you look around our industry now, there seem to be a lot of former tennis players turning tournament director. Um, I think their, their insight and obviously expertise in the sport definitely brings something to the game. Um, my path was definitely quite a bit less traditional than most, I think. Um, I've, you know, now being, um, in the role that I'm in, have gotten to know quite a few of the others from not only the Americas, but around the world. And most have in some way, shape or form been in tennis, um, for a large portion of their lives. And other than taking one tennis lesson or two, when I was a kid, I never was in it. Um, being Canadian, I thought I would end up in hockey, but I did my master's at Ohio university, um, in their sports ad program and started, you know, really kind of my love of events in undergrad, um, and, and just kept it going and knowing that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I had ended up moving to Texas after grad school. Um, I'd done an internship with the Texans in their ticket office and felt I'd made some good connections down here. Um, and after about two months had applied for a job as a restaurant manager, um, being Canadian, I needed to, to do something in my field to keep my student visa going. And the woman who interviewed me there turned out to be um, the club where this tournament used to be held. And she was like, I don't know that that's what you want to do. I think you sh we should train you to be the tournament director for this tennis tournament we have. And so I went home and Googled it. And lo and behold, <laughs> now I'm in tennis. Um, it, uh, it, it's a very non-traditional and kind of a dumb luck situation, but it's worked out well. And I honestly, truly do love it now and, and what I do. So um, non-traditional to say the least, but it's, I'm very blessed to be where I am. Yeah. Tennis, tennis in Canada don't, it was, it's at least not the first thing that comes to your mind when you say Canada. Uh, and what, what part of Canada to give some context? Um, I grew up outside of Toronto. So, and even now, I mean, the Rogers cup is there, but growing up, I, 
it was not something I was aware of. Um, you know, I knew of kind of the Andre Agassi and, and, you know, Pete Sampras of the world, but not in any context of, Ooh, I want to go work in that sport. Um, I definitely 100% felt like I was going to work in hockey. So, <laughs> well, well, hockey obviously, uh, is a little bit different than tennis in that hockey's indoor and cold, uh, and tennis is usually almost always outside, if not maybe in some sort of, uh, uh, bubble, right. To some extent. Um, you know, and then on a hard surface, not, not a icy one. So when you think about, when you think about tennis, uh, I know I'm being general here, but what is the, what is the tournament director role and and what do they do? I mean, I know when we were talking before this, you've got a staff of two people. So in your case, you probably jack of all trades in in that sense, right? (laughs) Most definitely. Um, they're, I don't think there's anything that happens tournament week that I'm not at the very least aware of. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned with a staff of two, we, we pretty much have our hands in every piece of the pie, um, you know, from volunteers to transportation, to player services, to take all of ticketing credentials, um, managing the events that we host as a part of our event, you know, so it's not just tennis. We've also, you know, we have the social side of it with, with different events throughout the week. Um, and there's, there really isn't a part of it that you can't be unaware of because someone, you know, as the person in charge, you, you are a little bit expected to know what's going on. Um, I spend more time looking at the weather, um, you know, than, than I think the average person, um, the last few years I've tried to stop looking at it because the weather is the one thing you can't control. And until something actually happens, there's nothing you can do about it. So (laughs) looking at thunder and lightning on a screen doesn't help you any, but, uh, yeah, it's really, it truly is a little bit of everything. Um, I think, you know, my time in the Texans ticket office, I took away from that a huge, enormous amount of respect for my boss there, John Schriever. Um, But I also took away from it knowing I did not want to be in ticketing for the rest <laughs> of my life. Um, and now, oddly enough, that is a huge part of, you know, what we do. So um, it's, you know, what you think you might not want to do is sometimes, you know, a part of it. So yeah, you're never going to love every single part of your job, right? And and that goes for any job you ever have. There's always pieces that you love, pieces that just you you hate, and then others that, um, you know, kind of fall somewhere in between. But that passion that keeps you going with, with what you do is probably, to some extent, largely on the impact that you can make on, on the community, right? And, and the people that you impact and the players uh, by hosting your event. Can you talk a little bit about just what what fuels you to be a tournament director and, and kind of where your passions lie? Sure. It's it, it truly from an event life standpoint, it's we work, you know, 355 days of the year for the 10 days that our event takes place to make it something truly spectacular. You want you know, you you mentioned it when you said the impact on the community and the impact on the players. We want to make sure that every single player who comes to our event has the best possible experience they do. And the same goes for our fans who are coming to our event. We want them to walk away thinking this is an event I need to come back to every year. Uh, And so, you know, putting those two things together as well as your volunteers 
you can't run an event without volunteers. So it, it really is that it's that people and kind of personable nature of events that I enjoy so much. You get to know so many different people throughout what you do and who you interact with. Um, and knowing that you are even just taking, you know, a small piece of what they do and, and hoping to make it something that everybody remembers is pretty neat. Um, in my, my, for me personally, um, it's a little bit of that strive for perfection of, you know, no matter what you see on the outside, I want it to look perfect and everyone be having the greatest time ever. You may see me behind my office door having a different reaction, but to, to what everyone sees on the outside, it's, it's all going great. So, um, it's, it truly is, it's, it's the challenge of making 10 days come together to be truly something spectacular. Um, I think with teams that, you know, have a season, what doesn't work in one game you can fix, you know, a week later in a next game, we don't have a week. We have, I have to fix it by tomorrow. Um, and so I think there's, you know, that set of different challenges that you encounter is what continues to make me, um, drive at it and, and continue to want to, to work harder at it. You mentioned the 355 for the 10 and, uh, <laughs> some would probably ask, and you've probably gotten this question over and over and over again what the heck do you do for the other 355 days of the year, right? <laughs> if you're, if you're running the event for, for 10 of them. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what do, I mean, obviously there is probably some sort of downtime just like everyone else kind of has their off season. Right. But, but for the most part, you're running and gunning the whole year. We are. <laughs> it is amazing how often I get asked that question. Um, but <laughs> when you think about it, when you see what happens over those 10 days, then it kind of goes into place. Oh yeah, this, you didn't just organize this yesterday, <laughs> you know, you've been, you've been working on it. So it is, it takes time. I mean, you have to get all of your sponsors into place and you're in communication with all of your ticket holders and you have a social media strategy that keeps you engaged with your fans year round. And so you're always working on that. Um, the operational aspects on the back end of just getting our staff in place um, for that week, you know, setting up the different pieces of our signage that go into place because we take place at a private country club, a lot of things are done behind the scenes up until, you know, that week right before, or really even a couple of days right before um, that then it's when we put, you know, signage out and really start to make it feel like a tournament is going to happen. Um, you know, we start a build middle of February on a piece of our stadium. And so that that's when you really start to feel like it's happening. Um, but there is, there's always something to be doing the rest of the year. I mean, we, we take it as a, I guess a challenge, if you will, to what can we learn from what just happened over these 10 days and how can we take that and improve on it for the following year? Well, and you mentioned your, your build in mid February. So for our listeners, as you think about um, your, your arena does not just exist, right? Like a, like a stadium or the Maple Leafs uh, arena would in Toronto, right? You've got to build it each year, take it down, uh, and that teardown process afterwards is, is is surely fun, but when you when for our for some context for our listeners, how far out is mid February from a build perspective, and how long does it take for that to come together? So we actually are pretty lucky. We do have three quarter three sides of our stadium are permanent. Um, River Oaks had wow. the stadium since well, the tournament has been played in play in the same place since 1931. Um, River Oaks has hosted an event. And so we do have three sides of our stadium that are permanent and they're year round. 
And so the other side, which hosts also our, you know, sponsor hospitality space that gets built starting mid February. So about six weeks prior to our event. Um, and that gives us time to get that site up, get it in place, you know, establish the hospitality space, get it decorated out um, and really, truly be set up to go. Um, our grounds crew start working on our stadium. Um, you know, if it's replacing boards in different parts of it and getting it painted up so it looks fresh and, and new for the year, uh, we start doing that really in December. And so the, the work starts on it long before people actually see the finished product. And you said, you know, grounds crew, uh, you mentioned volunteers earlier, you mentioned sponsors, you mentioned your, your staff of two, right? And, and all the people that are involved, when you think about it, and you take a step back, I mean, how many people touched the event in some sort of fashion? <laughs> uh, the scary part of that is we could probably get pretty close to an actual number. Um, for the week of the event, we hire um, you know, the tennis pros from the club. Um, and so in addition to our ticket office staff and a few other key um, parts, and so we probably hire about 20. Um, and then we've got 120 ball kids, 140 ball kids, um, about 200 volunteers. And then on top of that, we also have all of the country club staff and temporary staff that are a part of the event from a hospitality side of it, food and beverage and so that's easily somewhere in the range of 500 others. Um, and then you take into account security, you know, Houston Police Department. There's there are so many, um, truly, that that really when it comes down to it, I bet we're in the neighborhood of over a thousand people that really have an impact and, and do something to help the event be the success that it is. So only two of us maybe work on it year round, but everyone else really we can't do it without them. Right. Well, and and that's, you know, that's the point. I think, you know, when you think about uh, teamwork and, and being a team effort, right, there are certainly that jack of all trades that we talked about, but also knowing who to go for, for what, and who, who's going to be able to help you out in certain areas. Um, you know, you, I want you to think back to when you first started uh, and your first, very, very first tournament. And then now uh, where you are now, <laughs> what, I mean, I'm sure I just probably sent you through a whirlwind, but like, what's, what's one of the, you know, two biggest things uh, that you've learned along the way that you maybe just didn't know when you were starting? Um, man, that my first tournament, I, woo, the number of hours that I put in on that tournament and just what felt like was truly really working around the clock. Um, you learn to become more efficient in your time management and, how you do things and how far in advance. Um, I think for me, the biggest change, and as much as I said, I didn't want to work in ticketing the first two years that I had worked on the event. Um, we didn't have a way for online ticket sales because um, it had previously been kind of an invitational event. And so when it became a formal ATP event, we, <laughs> I remember that first year telling my boss, um, listen, we have to go online with ticket sales or I'm going to quit. Um, because I was using an Excel spreadsheet for a 3,500 seat stadium and having to go in every time I sold a ticket and manually enter that I had sold it and to who in what, you know, I had it blocked out for every session plus every seat in the stadium. Oh and so you can imagine the time that took. I was returning voicemails up until midnight. It felt like most nights. I mean, I just, I look back on those days. I, and think, I'm like, that, I think that would take you that. 
I think that would take you the 355 days, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I look back now and I'm like, I am the advances that we have made in technology that that drew do truly make your job a little bit easier. I um, will never be more thankful to those for those than I was when it came to ticket sales. Um, that's that was truly a game changer uh, for us. No question. When you think about uh, for someone who's just starting out now, right? So, so the ticket sales piece was uh, and technology was a huge help for you moving forward. But now in this current day and age, um, what is the biggest thing that a new tournament director now has to think about uh, as well going forward and, and in the future if it's their first tournament? I think it's a little bit less of maybe a new tournament director, but more all of us as a, you know, as a sport, as a whole within tennis, we need to be looking at what catches the next generation. Um, you know, the average age of a tennis fan is around 60 years old. And as we know, technology is moving at a very rapid pace and we need to be able to keep up. You have to be able to catch the interest of that, you know, 15 to 20 year old that, they might have played it a little bit in high school, but you want to gauge their interest and, and get it for the next, you know, two decades. Um, we, we need to have that in sport. Sport as a whole, not just in tennis, is moving very quickly and learning to adapt to that and, and make changes. You see it in the way, you know, things are scored and how fast they move on TV. Um, even hockey sometimes, you know, they trace the puck for people. It's the ways to catch people's interests. Um, the red zone, you know, on TV for the NFL, it's, that's what people want to see. And so we have to, we need to learn to adapt and, and figure out how that works in tennis and, and what that looks like. Um, I think we all have to be able to do that to move forward and, and keep our next generation involved. Yeah. You mentioned the youth and the next generation. I think that's obviously a focus for a lot of sports. Um, and if they're not paying attention to it, you know, uh, you'd probably say good luck, right? Because everyone needs to capture the next generation, whether you're a sport, whether you're a brand, whether you're a business. Um, but the next generation of tennis, when you think about the community in which you guys operate in, and then those in which your colleagues operate in, what's one of the biggest things that you try and do to involve the youth? I know you mentioned 120, 140 uh, ball girls and guys. Um, what Do you have any other events that are, you know, during the tournament week or just outside of tournament week to involve you? Uh, during the week of the tournament, we do a kid's day on the over-qualifying weekend. And so we're getting, you know, that goes out to the community as a whole, um, encouraging them to come out, get their kid out for, you know, a, an hour clinic with some of the pros. It just gives them that exposure to it um, for the next generation and for kids that young. I mean, it, it is about showing them that, that tennis is a game they can play. Um, and, and easily pick up. And so we do a kids day. We also do a juniors night during the week of the tournament. And so um, sell a very discounted ticket to local high schools, local junior team tennis teams, junior highs. And we sell probably about a thousand tickets to those local schools um, to come out and it fills the stands on that Monday night, which is fantastic to see. Um, and then throughout the rest of the year, we work within the community. We work with our NJTL, the National Junior Tennis and Learning Foundation, um, that's a part of the USTA. We've partnered with them to make sure that, you know, their programming can run well throughout the summer. Haley and I, who's who works with me, we both volunteer there during their summer events, um, really trying to make sure that that 
that organization has enough. Um, it, it stemmed from a couple of years ago after Hurricane Harvey. Uh, Houston was obviously, you know, very badly hit. And we had some of the pros reaching out to ask how we could help. And so we, through some donations, were able to resurface a couple of courts within the community. Um, we're working on doing a second set of those now. Um, so that's our goal is really to improve improve where kids can go and play, make it a safe space and make it something they want to do. No, that's fantastic. And when you think about the growth of the fans, right, the ones that will continue to keep coming back, you know, you hope that you can reach that younger audience as uh, they'll be your fan base for the future, right? Now, I want to pivot real quick because I did ask you about the 355 days and <laughs> I want to ask you about the 10. Right. So what happens tournament week? Uh, you, you don't just have a couple days of competition. I mean, there is a lot packed into those 10 days. Uh, what does a typical tournament week look like for you? And the second part of the question is going to be every tournament or every you know, event has something that they're really proud of or that they kind of stand for. It's their niche. What is your niche? <laughs> um, well, I guess a couple of ones, how it looks what that week looks like for me, one, it's my favorite time of the year. Most people will say I'm crazy, but for me, those 10 days are, they're all out, all in every day, all day. And it's, it's what you've worked for. So to see it come to fruition is there's just that sense of, of pride and sense of this is what we did and look at where we got. Um, it's probably about 20 different pairs of shoes over the course of the week. Uh, I've never tracked the mileage, but I feel like I should. Um, and so it's a lot of, a lot of walking, um, and making sure, making sure you're out there. Um, and it's a lot of hours. You're, you know, you're usually as tournament director, I'm usually the first one on the grounds other than our grounds crew. Um, and definitely one of the last ones to leave at the end of the day. And so that's, you know, you're, you're putting a lot of yourself out there. And so being prepared for that, knowing what it takes mentally to, to get through the week, what it takes for you. Um, and then as to what we're most proud of, it's really, it is the event as a whole, you know, we've touched on the community piece a couple of times and River Oaks, as I mentioned, has been hosting an event since 1931. We're this year, you know, unfortunately we were canceled, um, but would have been our 86th tournament at River Oaks, the tradition and the, the feeling behind that and what that shows is like none other. Um, our stadium is so unique compared to many and some of the many of the greats have played there. And just to have that that level, you know, a, a event that is so steeped in tradition is something that we are very proud of um, and, and to work very hard to maintain that feeling consistently and, and keep it the event that it has been while finding ways to make it, you know, the bigger and better. Um, but we always want to maintain that that tradition and, and being a part of the community. When, when you think about uh, those aha moments, um, you had to have had one when you learned, when you first learned about the clay, right? <laughs> I mean, like that had to have been something. I did. That you went, oh, like that's I how that I had no works. idea that clay, a clay court is not entirely clay. Like the clay is really like two inches on the top of some rocks and some dirt and some gravel. And there are a lot, we had to redo some corners on two of our show courts last year 
<laughs> there are a lot of different kinds of gravel out there. I, I can honestly say I would never want to be in the construction <laughs> industry um, and be a project manager for that. Um, between the gravel and some unknown water pipes, it, it was definitely an experience. Um, but yeah, clay cord is really, you know, those top few inches are clay, but underneath that, there's a whole lot of gravel. Well, I asked that in, in, you know, in the golf industry, you quickly learn, uh, and I had no clue, even though I do play myself, I had no clue that there was different types of grass, uh, you know, Bermuda and bent and, uh, you know, rye, yeah. I mean, just, it goes on and on. Right. And, and the different lengths and the seasons and how they're all affected. And it's, it's super fascinating. Um, but when you think about, you know, being from Canada and getting involved in tennis and not really knowing a whole lot about it, what was the one thing that surprised you or, um, you know, you, you kind of didn't know going into it, uh, just about the game in general or the, you know, the competition, et cetera, uh, that you, uh, are thankful that you got to learn. Wow. Um, I think it's that tennis is a family and, and a community. It's, I had no idea that tennis was such a far reaching sport. It truly is global. Um, you know, people play it all over the world in different countries there are you know the different surfaces and you really can play it at all ages people play it from the time they're five and we still see you know 80 and 90 year olds out there playing tennis they may not be moving as much as they were but they're out there and still playing um it's it, the number of people that play tennis in a community it's one of the fastest growing sports it was astonishing to me. I just, I really had no idea. I would have guessed, you know, soccer or football or something, especially now being in the States with football, but tennis really is growing. And it was, it was unbelievable to me, the number of leagues within a community and the number of different teams people would play on and how often a week they played. Um, so that to see them then want to see the pros in action for a week, because this is something that is their passion and they can identify with it was I just, I didn't know. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see and amazing to, to be a part of that community now. It's, I mean, family is, is certainly important. And I think, you know, for anyone who works in the industry, the, the industry is a family as a whole, right. And, and we all kind of try and help each other one way or another. Uh, as, as we wrap up the episode and, and you think about, um, you know, what we mentioned at the beginning of, you know, what does it take to be a tournament director, right? What is, what do you have to do to become a tournament director for those that are out there and they're interested in tennis or maybe they're doing something else, but they're like, Oh, that's interesting. Uh, based on the conversation we just had, what would be your biggest piece of advice for trying to get a foot in the door in the tennis world? Uh, and whether it's, you know, being a tournament director or at a, at a bigger tournament, you know, being maybe the sales manager or whatever it might be. I, you know, you said it, Jake, that the sports community as a whole is really and truly a family. Um, and so I think you can, you can start anywhere, but it's, it comes down to being willing and able to put in the work to, to prove yourself. You know, I think as we get into the different generations that are coming out now, there's a little bit of an expectation of, well, I deserve this. And to those of us who've been in it for a while, it's, it's less of a, you don't necessarily deserve it, but you can definitely work hard to earn it. Um, and the, the ability to, to put in the hard work and be willing to do whatever is asked of you, it goes 
a long way. Um, we take two interns every year from the program. And I can tell you that whoever works the hardest are the ones that you see and now know have, have gone the farthest um, with what they've done. And whether they've stayed in tennis or not, um, they're the ones who, you know, you're seeing succeed. Um, it's, it's that ability to just to put in the work. Yeah, I mean, regardless of the sport, it's all applicable, right? All the lessons that you learn and to your point, almost like how do you learn about uh, a hard work ethic and how to figure out how to have one if yeah. you don't? Um, and, and sometimes, you know, the lessons uh, as an intern, right, can, can truly set you on your path in terms of uh, just seeing someone such as yourself, right, set an example on how to well, work and hard we try to and be the first one. An example by anything I'm asking you to do, I have definitely done it before and would still do it. I'm, I would never ask someone to do something I'm not willing to do myself. And so it is for those of us who are in the position we're in lead by example. Um, your, what you are willing to do shows so much to those who are coming into the industry now. Yeah. Last question for you. How heavy is the tarp? We don't have a tarp. We... Don't have a tarp. Wow. <laughs> we do not. Um, the way our stadium is set up, it just space is a real issue. And so we don't have one. Um, we had one, one year, gosh, this is probably about almost 10 years ago. And it was an epic fail. <laughs> it. Uh... <laughs> I should have started the episode oh, off with man. this. It, uh, it was so terrible. The, the water collected on it. So Houston gets rain and it comes in hard and usually moves out pretty quick. And we collected so much water on the top of that tarp that then ultimately you, we could not pick it up and there was nowhere for it to go. It was, it was disastrous. We've never had a tarp since. Um, our grounds crew, Roberto has been in charge of our tennis courts for over 30 years and the man knows what he's doing. I just let him run with it. And it is no tarp. <laughs> they can post rainstorm from the time the rain stops and some of the water drains. We usually can be back on and playing in about an hour uh, on stadium court. So that's in terms of rain delay, that is pretty solid. So I will let him continue to do what he does best. That's truly amazing. And now I really know why you watch the weather. Yeah. So, much. so uh, <laughs> Bronwyn, Bronwyn, really appreciate you taking the time and providing some advice and insights on the tennis world and what it's like to be a tournament director. Appreciate it. It was my time. pleasure, Jake. I look forward to talking to you guys soon.